morning, everybody. I hope we're all doing well on this chilly November uh, morning. Um, thank you all so much for joining us so far. I'm, I can imagine that there's uh, lots of things you can be doing uh, as we get closer to Christmas, because uh, Lord knows I've been hearing about Christmas everywhere um, and we're all quite busy. Um, so thank you again for joining us today. Um, this talk will be on mental health and trauma responses in the workplace. Absolutely delighted to be joined by Dr. Jen Daffin from Platform and with Anna Denton-Jones from Refreshing Law Limited, who is our re <laughs> resident speaker. Um, yes, so thank you very much for joining us. Quick rundown of this is uh, I'll be passing you over to Isabel Richards, who is our um, charity specialist, as it is Welsh Charities Week. She'll give you a bit of an introduction to Yoke, and then we'll hear from Dr Jen. So thank you again, everyone, for joining us today. And Izzy, over to you. Um, yeah, hi, everyone. Thank you for um, joining us today. Uh, like Robin said, um, I'm the specialist charity recruiter here at Yoke. So I'm sure that um, I'll know a few of your faces. Um, well, you might know my voice anyway from from some calls we've had over the past few weeks. Um, so it's nice to meet you all finally. Um, so, yeah, I'm just jumping on to give a, a quick quick introduction um, on Yoke. Um, as many of you know, we're a multi-division recruitment agency covering all sectors from marketing, engineering, law, finance, IT, sales and public sector. Um, so, yeah, I've been with, with Yoke for just over a year now um, and it's, it's been amazing, a, a massive great uh, turning point in my career. Um, and I've enjoyed every single moment of it. Um, been really lucky to be a part of setting up the charity sector here at Yoke. Um, and I'm proud to be announcing that this week, um, alongside Welsh Charities Week, we are releasing our first charity newsletter, um, which is amazing. So we've been working um, with a load of my clients, um, charity clients, which I think some of you guys are on here now, um, to kind of talk about fundraisers coming up, volunteer opportunities, um, and kind of just new new things going on um, in all the, my kind of charities and clients that I work with. Um, so yeah, we'll be assisting Welsh Charities Week um, with WCVA uh, to kind of promote charities um, across Wales, um, you know, in, in kind of giving them some recognition for everything that they're doing. So um, yeah, if you want to head over to kind of our LinkedIn page as well as um, mine personally, we've got lots of updates on, on that this week. Um, so yeah, be be great to, to get it all out and look forward to kind of having chats with you and discussions about um, some great things charities can be doing. There you go, Rob. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Izzy. Um, Dr. Jen, over to you. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me here today as well. Um, so I've been tasked with uh, presenting to you a quick succinct but also hopefully it makes sense um summary of, of of mental health in the workplace and understanding the impact of trauma there uh just some context of who i am then so i'm dr jen daffin i'm a community clinical psychologist which means i'm a practitioner and i work in practice um so prior to working at platform i used to work in an air and bevan health board in child and family psychology um just that's a little bit of context in terms of where i'm coming at this from um but i now work at platform and if you don't know what platform if you haven't heard of platform yet we have two key mission statements and we're a mental health charity for mental health and social change or social justice um, and we have two key um objectives the, the first is to change the dominant narrative around mental health 
By that, we mean advocating for the role that trauma, life experiences and social economic circumstances have on our mental health and then therefore our ability to heal. And our second purpose is to our, our current uh, helping systems are in crisis. If, if you weren't aware, if you haven't heard, uh, the NHS is also in crisis, but mental health services are particularly in crisis. Um, and our broader helping systems aren't functioning very well for people. And so it's our objective to support and think about how can we do that differently? Um, I just want to orientate you to the dominant narrative. So that by the dominant narrative, we mean the medical model. Um, now, in a, in the nuttiest, nuttiest nutshell, like in the, in, a, in the shortest, that is that our mental health is determined by chemical imbalances or genes. Um, that is, is not true and nor is that the fullest picture. So what we're advocating for is a holistic approach that takes all the different things that impact our mental health into account. And I'm going to, that's where I'm going to start my talk from, is orientating you to that, to what, what do we mean by that? So at its simplest form, when we are talking about mental health, what the evidence base is saying is that it's about nervous system overwhelm and loss of connection to the self, others and the world. So what do we mean by that? Well, this is a model of our nervous system. And you can see that when we're at our like best, uh, we'll be down in the green um, and we'll be in this kind of connected, safe, space our, our body will be in that kind of that space as well as our mind and our thinking and we'll be able to be curious open compassion feel grounded be present and experience joy that's very normal for us all as i'm sure you can all imagine to move through this system and move through it quite rapidly so we can move through it on a daily basis but on a weekly basis but also across our lifetime um this uh, system, um, our nervous system's function is to protect us. Now, when it originally evolved, it was to protect us from physical threats. So that's like the uh, other animals, uh, predators in our environment. That's not how we live today. Um, and so there's been an adaptation of this system over time to uh, take into account social threats. So when we're thinking about this system today, it's most helpful to think about it as uh, in the context of social threats. Uh, of which, because we're so social, there are many, again, that, that may come our way across across the day. Um, so what, what we what we do then when a threat arrives is that our body will move into a state of fight or to flight. Now, fight is to move towards that. So it may provoke rage, anger, irritation. Flight is to move away from that, which may provoke anger, panic, fear or concern. Now, that's a doing stage where we can have some agency in, in doing a, in having a response to fight or to flight. Um, when things get too much or a threat is a threat is either too big or a threat is sustained for too long, um, we become exhausted and our body becomes overwhelmed and we tip into the state called freeze, which is where we'll feel helplessness, numb, depressed, disassociated, which is where we're switching out, clocking out, um, full of shame, shut down, hopelessness and feeling trapped, prepared to die. The, the, the top of that then is total despair, which is where somebody may take their life. That's total nervous system dysregulation in, in a nutshell. Um, and it's quite normal to move through this. Um, but if we have lots of adversity and lots of threats in our lives, then we can stay stuck in these states for longer periods of time. So whilst we're moving through it like that across the day, um, there's also kind of it's also across a, a, a graded spectrum as well. And the thing to draw your attention to here is that anxiety then is not the end product in itself. 
we talk about diagnosing anxiety or diagnosing depression as if they are the things and we look for the symptoms for those but actually anxiety and depression are symptoms of nervous system dysregulation it's a symptom of too much threat or threat within our environment and so they are signs they're warning signs of these things as well as the other things that are on there as well they're warning signs now some of us are born with more sensitive stress systems and so we may be born a little bit higher up so i can't see if you see my mouse sorry but i'm pointing to the fight flight area we may be born a little bit higher up on there um prepared for an environment of stress that's what you may have heard of as transgenerational trauma or an epigenetic transference of trauma. So if, if you've heard of ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, it's where toxic stress in our early years impacts our later life outcomes. Now, toxic stress has such an impact on us that it can uh, mean that it, it, it's correlated to in later life, cancer, diabetes, heart disease, addiction, and mental health problems. That toxic stress just doesn't occur across our one lifetime. If we have toxic stress in our lifetime, we can uh, change the edges of our genes to prepare the next generation for stress as well. And that's what we mean by transgenerational or intergenerational stress. And so some of us are born with that kind of preloading. Um, uh, and so some of us then may, may need more support around us in order to do nervous system regulation. And the point here is that we're not born with the ability to do nervous system regulation. Um, oh, sorry, before I move on to that, the thing that's missing from this model is this fourth threat response, which is fawning. So the model I've just shown you is a is a little bit outdated and based on the idea that we don't tend for our young. It's a little bit um, survival of the fittest orientated. And in, in being survival of the fittest orientated, it hasn't taken in the social nature of who we are which is that we will also fawn. So we'll do fight, flight, freeze, which I've just explained, but we'll also tend and befriend. So we may take a threat and bring it in close um, and, and uh, uh, like uh, keep, it, keep it near us in order to try and control that threat. If you think about domestically violent situations and uh, where, where uh, a member of the, fa the family or the couple won't leave, what you may be looking at there is a fawning response. But we're not born with this. We learn this stuff through our early primary attachment relationships. So that's usually our parents. Um, and it's usually usually mums because they're the ones that that do the, the, the rearing. Um, and it's through those early interactions of that that key person attending to our needs that we learn to do emotional regulation. So if we don't get that, then we don't learn. If we don't get that good enough. We don't learn how to do this stuff but also how our parents or our family history or the culture, cultural history that we're in does this stuff is what we learn. Um, so it gets, it's kind of like um, a script that gets passed down. And what I mean by that is, so this is just um, a, the attachment literature summarized into a, a, one simple diagram. What we mean is what we need is um, a secure base and that secure base the, the adult creates it, it sends us out into the world to be watched over delighted to, to help with us and to enjoy with us but they will catch us and welcome us back in um, and they'll do so when things get overwhelming or even if they're really excited and we want to share it because we we do like we want to do that we want to connect with others we we will come back in and we'll seek out whoever that person is to protect in us comfort in us delight in us and to organize our feelings 
So if you've ever seen, um, which I'm sure you would have, we would have done, a, a parent carrying a like six month old baby. And what you can see is they're probably rocking the baby and talking to the baby and they're naming the things, you know, oh, are you tired? Are you hungry? Oh, they're there. And, and there's a dialogue that's occurring between the parent and the child. And that child doesn't have language yet and isn't going to be responding. Yes, I am. Yes, yeah, I am hungry. Thank you for noticing that I'm hungry. Um, the the parent isn't doing that for the benefit of the of themselves either. What they're doing there is the beginnings of organising our feelings. So our emotional part of our brain isn't born connected to our thinking part of our brain. We have to teach them how to connect. So we have to give our language. We have to give our emotions words in order to um, make sense of them. And this process by creating secure base um we're starting to do that so we're starting to give meaning and sense making to our emotions and how we feel and in 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 an ideal world a secure base a, a good parental figure is creating um uh, sorry is being bigger wiser stronger kinder in their responses and wherever possible following their child's needs but ever wherever necessary taking charge and it's through this process that we learn our patterns of how to what should we be scared of what should we not be scared of how and how do we respond to things what are the socially acceptable ways of responding to things the important thing to note here is that you can own we're not islands and that we don't um just you know go through childhood, tick, that's done, learnt my emotional regulation, got my secure base stuff, off I go into adulthood. This stuff stays with us um, and gets evoked continually throughout our lives. So we all have secure base and relationship patterns that get evoked as we move into um, uh, partner or romantic relationships, but also with friends and peers as well. These things will be evoked in those relationships. And we're not immune then from other people's responses. So we can only be as regulated as the people we, we interact with on a daily basis. This starts to then have real importance when we're talking about the workplace. And this is a model we've been working at on a platform to try and articulate how do we become trauma informed and relationally healthy? How do we tune into these really fundamental needs that we have that we don't stop having and how do we make sure our organizations and our work culture and spaces honor them and, and meet them so we're re-articulating this as the secure base in this context is the managers policy practice and the systems because we can have attachment to individuals but we can also have attachment to place and to organization to objects as well uh, if you think of your phone and your closeness with your phone there um, and what we're looking to do is to send people that out into the world of work by encouraging being inclusive trusting fair transparent and curious but then welcoming them back in and organizing their their the and doing the sense making when things start to go wrong or when things are going well by being open human connective reflective supportive and protective and in doing this what we're seeking to do is to create psychosocially healthy organizations and work practice that a that fosters psychosocial health or, men, or mental health like good mental health um, by creating the conditions for agency security connection meaning and trust not only so the individual can thrive, but so the whole system can thrive and the whole system can function better as well. So when we're talking about mental health, it's like really difficult to distinguish, you know, mental health in the world as, as well as mental health in the workplace, because we're the same people when we arrive, although the context is different and the expectations are different. We don't leave that stuff at home. We don't leave our relational patterns and ways of responding and doing nervous system regulation at home. Um, 
and so the important thing to note here is that our mental health is determined by the conditions in which we are born, grow, live, um, as well as like the wider set of forces that shape our lives. So if you think about all those kids that have just been through COVID, that's what we mean there. That's going to have had a particular impact on them in terms of their circumstances. So when we're talking about mental health, it's absolutely not what's wrong with you. And it's everything about what's happened to you. And in this, we have to start to recognise that mental health is then ultimately about your postcode is more important to your mental health than your genetic code. Just to put it into a little bit more context, we mean this. So if we want to understand and address mental health, we need to dig deeper. We need to go beyond the medical model, which is just the diagnosis labelling. We need to go beyond pharmacology and medical intervention medication interventions. We need to go beyond individualization and putting those problems onto the individual and saying there's something wrong with you. We need to go beyond the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Statistics Manual that gives the medical model diagnosis. And we need to go beyond pathologization because this is not stuff that people are born with or that's a defect in somebody's chemical makeup or DNA. And what's going on is all of these different things underneath. Poverty, inequality, oppression, racism, injustice, trauma, and all of the different things that you can imagine may negatively impact on someone's circumstances that will cause situations where there's chronic exposure to humiliation, shame, isolation, loneliness, fear, feeling trapped and powerlessness. And that's the antithesis of psychosocial health. So what we want to be getting people up to and what we want to be creating in our environment is, in, is those that can sustain agency, security, connection, meaning and trust. And we need these things across all of the layers. So those same things that psychosocial health, agency, security, connection, meaning and trust, we need them at the individual le level, like we need to have them with ourselves but we need to have them within our family dynamics and our relationships. So the immediate environment around us, so that's like as we're growing up with our peers at school, the, the immediate environment around us, so like work and all, and all of those different systems, but we need them around um, the indirect influences as well. So we need to see them in the way we do policy and practice and our health systems um, and the broader systems around us, as well as the wider ideological and cultural context as well. Um, they they will all be impacting on our mental health and they kind of cross, as you can see from the diagram, all those different layers. And uh, they cross across time as well. So we've got transgenerational, intergenerational trauma that comes down, but whatever is happening in our current context gets passed then on to future generations as well. So what do we mean by trauma? The definition, the, the like leading definition that's given that, that practitioners will will go to is this one by SAMHSA, which is a substance misuse and alcohol, uh, substance misuse, alcohol and mental health um, association in America. So this is like taken as the standard definition. So it's an event, series of events or set of circumstances that is experienced by an individual as physically or emotionally harmful or life threatening and that has a lasting effect on their functioning across the mental, physical, social, emotional or spiritual well-being. And I just want to go into this a little bit deeper to unpack it a little bit. So when we're talking about trauma, well, that really means then is it that it's about the big T events that happen in our lives um, and that happen in our circumstances, as well as it's also about the small things, the little things that just you don't get constantly or the little things that happen to you. We, we can sometimes call those microaggressions as well. And some people may be more subject to those than others. But it's also about what you did not get. 
So that's about psychosocial health. So did you get a uh, secure base? Did you get those things? Did you get uh, the opportunity for agency, for authenticity, for security, for connection, for meaning and trust as well? Um, so it's the it's an active thing as much as it's an inactive thing as well. And it also occurs at a population or community level, not just the individual. Um, and by that, I don't mean you've got a bunch of people that have traumatic experiences or, or stressful lives with lots of adversity and we put them together and they live together. I don't mean it's the sum of those coming together. It's the lack of getting your needs met in the environment. So an environment that's full of humiliation, shame, isolation, feeling loneliness and those things um, that's contributing here. So that can be Grenfell as an example. Abravan. It can be an entire community. This is Pill in, in Newport, if you're familiar, or it can be the workplace. Now, the important thing to note here about trauma is that it's not event outcome. It's a little bit more complex than that. So there may be an event or something that happens, but it's our experience of the event from all of our learnt relationship stuffs, from all of the resilience we have around us, um, from all of the other scripts and things that are going on in our lives. It's the sense that we make of it um, that leads to the effect that it has on us. So what I may experience, uh, an event that I may experience may me, may make different sense to me, may have a different impact on me, which means it has a different effect. Um, and that's true of everybody. So we can't categorically say this thing will cause X in someone and this thing will be a trauma for someone. There's another helpful way of thinking about it is that we all have different power operating in our lives. Um, and that manifests through bodily, economic, legal, coercive, social capital, relational or ideological power. Um, so we all have different experiences, exposures to that. And it's that stuff that then uh, we're arriving to a threat with. So we then interpret it from that basis as what 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 impact did it have on you? What threat did it cause? Once we've done that, we then start to think, oh, what, what, what meaning are we making from this? We've got a threat. What meaning are we making from this? From that, then we give a response. And then depending on how much resilience we have around us and what our strengths are, it will also interplay in this. And so really when we're talking about trauma, what we're talking about is what is your story and what is the bigger picture and the broader picture that's going on around you? So what, is, what does it mean for work when we think specifically and bringing it back down to a work context? In 2018, 55% of Brits felt they were under excessive pressure, exhausted or regularly miserable at work. But with our current understanding, the dominant understanding of mental health, our responses have been employee well-being programs that distract from that context, distract from what's really driving and causing our, our mental health or mental ill health and causing us distress or trauma um, and moving it away from problems of workplace culture, structures and policy or problems of broader societal issues moving it away from that and instead using a medical language of illness and disorder to shift the burden of responsibility onto the individual. So you can, if, you, if you've been on a mental health, um, number of mental health programs, what they may teach you to do is to identify those symptoms of the diagnosis, but what they don't allow you to do is understand the broader context or why that is, um, and then leave you with no rationale or um, agency as an organisation to do anything differently about that, shift the responsibility onto the individual and outside into to the GP.
doesn't give you any life allow for any sense making. So what does it mean to be a trauma informed organization then? That's our journey at Platform is trying to discover what that is, because if you've heard anything so far is that it's complex and there's a lot going on. So there's a lot to unpick, some of it within our control, some of it beyond our control. So what we're starting to understand is that being trauma informed is about relationships and it's about how we do good psychosocially healthy relationships. So trauma informed is getting banded around uh, a lot. It's the buzzword and there's there's lots of stuff out there how you should be trauma informed, how you can do that. But if we think about what we've just been saying, what we're actually talking about is a relational health continuum. And when we talk about trauma, we're talking about just the deficit end, the negative end of that. We're talking about nervous system dysregulation or overwhelm and loss of connection to self others in the world. We're talking about being traumatized and surviving in circumstances that are full of humiliation, shame, fear, isolation, loneliness and feeling trapped in powerlessness. And what that doesn't give us is a language or a map, a roadmap to move towards well, what is the good stuff? How do we get away from that and how do we kind of resolve this? So we've started talking about the relational health continuum, and that's about creating those psychosocially healthy circumstances and cultures that are based on agency, security, connection, meaning and trust, because that is what helps us regulate. And that is what helps us have a regulated nervous system. It creates the opportunities for us to have connection. It's absolutely not a tick boxing exercise, nor is it about fixing people. It's a massive cultural shift um, and a, about learning to be with. So that's to sit with emotion and distress, to understand what's causing it through the different things that, I, that I've explained um, and learning to make sense of that together. And if you're on a trauma informed journey or trying to become a trauma informed or a mental health aware organisation, it's their expectation is that we'll do something and then we'll get there. But in reality, because we're talking about relationships and everybody has different needs uh, within relationships and we have, a, if you're a bigger organization, multiple different relationships occurring in different ways and different times. If you've got different teams and departments doing different things, they're going to have different needs. The reality is to get there, to get to that healthy culture is going to be more like this. Um, are you going to move forward and you're going to move back and it's going to it's going to take some investment in, in those relationships. I just want to finish with giving you a bit of a flavour of where we're at now um, in terms of trying to resolve our uh, resolve these things and, and embed these things and think about how do we embody them within with our organisation at platform. So, so within that, then becoming trauma informed requires change, requires us to be doing something different. I mean, often we may be doing things already and it's about acknowledging them, but, but sometimes it's also about change and change is inherently relational. So change is about people, it's about relationships and it's dependent on our ability to work together. So if we haven't got good relationships, we haven't got a good regulated system. I come from the NHS. Um, the NHS is not in a good state. It's not in a regulated state. It's not resourcing its um, workers well enough, which means that we're when we're arriving at things, we're not arriving in that healthier space that we can. And so then our ability to work together and um, to then achieve change is compromised by that. Um, so it's about tuning into where are we at um, uh, in order to get to the to realize the change that we want to do because it's it's dependent on the individuals around you and a platform we have a similar thing so we we work with um uh, people in distress 
and people in quite high end of, of distress, not always, but most often. Um, and so the workforce are up against that every day and they're up against other systems that are traumatized and in surviving mode as well. And so there's a lot. And we've just been through COVID. This was about nine months ago, maybe a year now, actually, we did this. Um, and our staff were feeling burnt out and fed up of change. They were not in a regulated state in order to engage with with anything, um, uh, with becoming trauma and relationally like informed and healthy as an organization, but also just generally in their work. We were not getting the best out of them um, because they they were fe they were feeling um, uh, overwhelmed. Uh, so starting from that point, we recognized that there was work to be done. And so in our journey to becoming more aware of these things, we fully recognize that this is about starting with trust and moving at the speed of trust and not trying to do pe do to people. It's about sitting and being with it. It's not about fixing it and trying to take it away, but trying, but it's first about understanding it and trying to understand how do we move from these traumatizing circumstances and, and, and get to psychosocial health. Absolutely needed to connect at all the different layers across the organization, um, largely because of the context of COVID, we had massive disconnection. And so we had lots of good connection, but it was in silos. So as a sum of an organization, we'd lost that, that uh, the, the culture of connection and the, and the fabric that allowed us to do that connection. Um, but we need connection to be able to get there to, 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 to have the relationships. In this kind of work, when we're thinking about this, when we're thinking about creating these environments, um, it's absolutely about learning and doing what we call repair. When you're looking for change and you're looking to move people in a direction, we're going to have ruptures. We're going to have disagreements and misunderstandings. And it's about tuning into those, sitting with those, but not ignoring them, addressing them and doing what we call repair. So when there's been a rupture in a relationship, something's gone wrong. It's about coming together and um, exploring how do we reconnect? The rupture causes disconnection. How do we create connection? Sometimes that's about saying sorry. Sometimes sorry is not the thing that's needed. So it's it's unique to the, the circumstances. We absolutely need to watch out for when we're slipping into blame. So it's, it's your fault. We've got a blame culture and it's so-and-so's fault, for example, because when we're doing this kind of change work and we're looking at you know, our emotions and our relationships, um, we're going to get frustrated and we're going to get nervous about change because this is not stuff that we ordinarily do and ordinarily think about in our in our workspaces. So just tuning into that when I'm slipping into blame, I'm slipping into fight and flight response. I'm a dysregulated response. And let's try and stay away from that. It's absolutely, especially in our context where we're working with distress all the time, easy to forget and to rule out making space for fun and joy. Like you can only experience fun and joy when you're in that regulated state, um, like honestly and, and like um, authentically. Um, it's absolutely keeping that stuff in the room and making sure that we're paying attention to that and that we're doing that and not being so serious about this stuff as well. Um, so just to find like to, to finish on. So the bad news is that we're growing and it's uncomfortable, but the good news is it's uncomfortable, but we are growing. That's all from me. Thank you for listening. Contact details on the slides as well. If you'd like the slides, you can pick those up there. Thank you very much, Jen. That was uh, really informative. I, uh, I, I thought that was really interesting and um, definitely um, things to think about. So have some space to do some of that thinking if you if you'd like. Happy yeah. to take questions. Absolutely. Does any anybody have any questions for Dr. Jen?
can pop them in yeah. the chat if yeah. you would prefer yeah. not to speak. Feel, feel free to pop them in the chat um, and I will read them out towards the end. Anna, over to you. I, I was just going to ask Jen a question before I say anything. Oh, absolutely. If, if Jenny had a magic wand <laughs> and there was one thing that you could do in workplaces with your magic wand, what would that one thing be? I, fortunately, and I always tell people I don't have a magic wand. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had a bucket full of magic wands. I've, I've sold out my magic wands. But if, if there was one thing, I think it's awareness um, and having the narrative, this this narrative, this kind of narrative, this understanding. Because if you have that, then you take it wherever you need to take it. Um, I don't need to dictate that. Like you'll know what your needs are and how you're going to meet them. But you can't do that unless you have the narrative. So if there's one change, it would be that all workplaces have access to this kind of thinking. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, sorry, Jen. Um, one other question. I was going to ask something, and then I just noticed a similar question on the chat. Um, so, yeah, someone's just asked saying, um, how difficult is it when leaders don't accept um, this type of like thinking? Um, and I was going to ask as well if you've got any tips or like first steps to take if you're trying to get like senior management involved in this and change their thinking on, on it. Do you want me to answer those now? Is that or am I disrupting flow? Is that OK? Yeah, no, go oh, ahead. Absolutely. Yeah, cool. Um, OK, so I'll start with the leaders so that's so I come from public sector so that's massive organizations and um we did have the school of thought that right must you must have buy-in from the top must start from the top it's not going to work if you haven't got leaders um that understand it and that are investing in and buying into it but actually when we're talking about those kind of large-scale organizations so NHS but also police and education for example that senior leadership is there and there's like so many rungs in between that by the time you get down it's it's totally lost who said what the trauma hoo-ha like nobody can remember and the flow of information gets lost so there's a real argument for it is a top-down approach but you also need bottom up as well and that there's no real right answer in where it starts if we, we kind of now say go where the energy is and so um, if, if you're interested in this or you want to gain traction in this, um, start doing it in the small place that you are, where you have the agency uh, to, to, to do that um, and let it ripple across. I wouldn't get caught up on we, all, we need all senior leadership to have buy in before we can start doing this and realising some of their stuff. Um, I think it it trips up the process, but also, um, yeah, it's. It's almost like the more people that you can get the buy-in with the breadth, the more you'll get the change. So don't be hindered by where that needs to start. But obviously, I'm talking from public sector, it's easier in a smaller organisation, perhaps, or the resistance where you've got one particular person in a small group who's absolutely no, we're not doing this, is will be will be different. I guess it, in that instance where you've got like a leader or leaders that are resistant I'd be tuning into I would say this very carefully because a lot I don't want to paint all leaders um, but we do have a tendency especially if you look at politics to recruit people that are maybe not psychosocially healthy that have rational health 
Um, and so when you're looking to those leaders, they may not have the skills in order to do the things that we want them to do because they're in the positions that they are for their own traumatic experiences or for the lack of their own relational health. Um, and so I guess it's about coming at that with compassion um, and not not trying to fight that head on, but thinking about how do you how can I work with this um, and employ some of your compassion skills? Is that was that your question? Does I am I getting to your question, James? Yeah, yeah, that's great. Thank you. Are there any more questions for Jen just while we're we're at it? Yeah, there are. There's a couple in the chat. So um, any tips or advice for organisations where the work has the potential to cause the trauma? So I'm imagining, so it's not been um, elaborated on in the chat, but I'm imagining things like, let's say the medical service where, you know, um, paramedics are seeing really awful things just as part of the job. Um, you know, what what would be the advice there? I have that that's that's like I, I can relate that personally so as a psychologist tr treating if the role is to treat to treat that we're exposed to that on a daily basis um, and you may also get exposed to you know loss of life um, as well um, and that's not just in those experiences but you know there are a number of organizations where that happens out of the blue and you're even less prepared because it's not your normal run-of-the-mill business um, uh, what what is really important is that we've got the support networks around us and that you've got a culture of um, being open to talk about those things and create space for those things um, that you're not putting the problem onto the person. So there is lots of lots of this work done in health services uh, in the run up of COVID. Um, so it's about tuning into what our physical needs are is what our emotional needs are. There are lots of models for that. So reflective practice. Um, is a is a really good way. So so thinking about how can your organisation do reflective practice, both at the individual level around like not post incident support because there's some guidance around that, but like coming around people to make sure um, that they get their needs met in those. So they're getting regular breaks. They they they've got time off, um, and you're tuning into compassion fatigue as well as like what we call that secondary trauma um, or uh, vicarious trauma um, that you're naming that in your organization you've got practices or, or policies and pathways to to be identifying that and providing people support um, uh, I would check out on Twitter Dr Judith Highfield she's the consultant clinical psychologist for Cardiff and the Vale I don't know the technical term where they dealt with the COVID <laughs> um, the trauma ward, maybe um, she did loads of stuff and it's free online as well. So Dr. Judith Highfield, I can share those those details. Um, Brilliant. Any, any others? Yeah, um, there's a question here and I think Anna, you might have some interesting things to say about this as well. Uh, says, I often work with employers trying to manage the survivors of a bullying culture after a bully has been exited who have no idea where to uh, where to start in terms of trying to help the team heal. Um, what are your thoughts? So in terms of practice, um, say in terms of healing, healing is about recreating safety. Um, it's about uh agency security connection meaning and trust creating that environment tuning into where did that go wrong but it's ultimately first thing about safety and from safety you can start to rebuild trust 
but in terms of trauma recovery, we first need to be regulated before we can relate, before we can do reasoning. Um, we need a stable environment. So it's first about stabilizing the environment, tuning into what are the needs uh, of the of the people, and they'll be unique to whatever that space was. Um, and then it's about uh, sense making. So so that's like making sense of what happened um, and, and making sure people have a coherent narrative. So we need a comprehensible meaning, meaningful, manageable world. Um, uh, and so exploring and spending some time. How did this happen? How did we get that culture? Um, and how do we not go there again? So doing a bit of that, not restorative because you don't want to put it back because you don't want it to be the way it was, but transformative um, approaches in place. Um, building on the model of first, we need to be regulated before we can start relating back, before we can have that trust to do that, before we then start to do the reasoning stuff and just spending some time with that. Um, that model is Dr. Bruce Perry's model. Um, and the trauma recovery it's the trauma recovery model that I'm, I'm saying there in terms of first we need to have be regulated and before we can start to do some sense making before we can like move forward in terms of healing but in a nutshell safety thinking about how do you how do you recreate safety yeah i i often find that people aren't terribly aware of themselves if that makes sense so um, some of the stuff that Jen was talking about at the beginning, you know, the fight and flight response, what's going on just at a brain chemical level when you perceive a threat. You know, sometimes I will talk people through those sorts of basics. And it's amazing sort of hearing pennies drop and people realising that that's why they have such a physical reaction, perhaps to, I don't know, having to go into a room with a particular person and that by talking it through. It becomes OK, it's something that this is normal, this is any human being would be experiencing this, this isn't me being a problem and that that is helpful to people to, to just understand some of the stuff that Jen's been talking about today, um, I think helps people start on a, on a, on a process for sure. Hmm. So one more question from the chat. Um, where do we start when trying to remove the stigma of mental health as a topic? Um, in a nutshell, um, this is about all of us. So if we understand that it's about good nervous system regulation and how we do connection, then the mental health is not those people over there that have the mental health. I think the one in four, um, the well-meaning statement around one in four people have a mental health problem is really unhelpful because it suggests that it's random. Um, and that, you know, any anybody's it's like at a biological or lack of personal resilience, which is not true. Um, any of us that are put in the psychosocially unhealthy circumstances, so in circumstances that are toxic, we will have problems. Um, and so if we want to get rid of stigma, then we need to understand that, that this is not about others. This is about us, all of us together. But it's not about us as individuals, as a personal failing. It's about what's going on. And it's what you just said. It's about externalizing it. So knowing that it's not a problem for you, that there's something wrong with you. It's about understanding it in um, in the broadest sense, in that holistic sense around that it's about our circumstances that we're being exposed to. It then becomes a social issue, not an individual one. Yeah. 
I wanted to point out that the World Health Organization for the first time has published new guidance for mental health in the workplace. Um, you know, fitting in with a lot of Jen's diagrams from earlier, essentially making it clear that it's the employer's responsibility to be doing these things, which, you know, you might not agree with the particular language used. It's, you know, it's obviously aimed at a global audience. Um, but going back to everything that Jen has said about you know, taking it away from personal responsibility, making it something that we're all responsible for. I think if we talk about line managers, you know, not making it about being something wrong with that individual or their problem, but actually something that's going on in my team that I need to address. That's just a one small step in the right direction, isn't it? Um I'm a glass half full kind of a girl. Um, so I'm actually of the view that the pandemic has a silver lining in it, which is that people have, <coughs> excuse me, been forced to understand perhaps their own mental health a bit better. <coughs> excuse me, including our leaders. So we are all talking about it more. And we're having sessions like today and that can only be a good thing can't it totally agree with you there i think what the pandemic has shown us is it's about our circumstances and how when we radically change our circumstances well we are all impacted by that like if you were eating more drinking more binge watching tv more that's the stuff that we're talking about and i know i definitely suffered from that and we had that collective like shared experience of that I had thought about this um, when you were talking through your slides, because one of the things you said was how we all experience things very differently. So my experience of COVID and lockdown was one that felt quite isolating and I didn't enjoy it. Um, but I know so many people that actually really thrived in that environment where they were allowed to like keep themselves to themselves. So I, I definitely think that the way we experience things, even if it's the same event, we all experience them very differently. Oh, definitely. We, um, we saw when I was, I was working in cams at the start of the pandemic and we saw with well, kids are going to be sent from home. This is going to be a nightmare. Loads of kids started thriving because they didn't have to go to school and school was being a real problem for them. But that really did help them because it it took them out of toxic circumstances. Um, so it absolutely is about circumstances. Loads of kids weren't thriving. And I think collectively it, there's, there's acknowledgement that that is a big problem. Yeah, I'm not I, saying that's why other people were in, were enjoying lockdown. There are very many different reasons why people would would would, would thrive from that. Yeah. I've heard line managers say the same. So they there were team members that uh, perhaps that they thought would thrive who didn't and have struggled. And then there have been people who um, have just started punching above their weight and, and, you know, different people have reacted differently. For tuning sure. in and making sense of that and being curious as to you know what might home life be like for someone or what what might work life have been like for someone that's that's shifting that i think that's an important conversation to have mm. 
So I prepared to say a few things this morning, obviously, without knowing anything that Jen was going to say. It was quite interesting to see how perhaps the ideas kind of dovetail together. Um, a couple of different threads, I suppose, to what I wanted to say. Um, the first thread was around job design. Now, Jen put up a pre-COVID statistic about people's unhappiness, perhaps, with um, design of jobs. And I saw some um, data yesterday uh, from an American commentator, but was looking at, at global surveys um, about uh, people's satisfaction, if you like, with their jobs, and that 46% of people globally would not want a child that they cared about to go into their field. And indeed, 38% of people were saying they wouldn't wish their job on their worst enemy. Yet, when people are surveyed, they still say that if they won the lottery, they'd still want to work. So there is something very positive about the workplace. And we obviously get a lot from it. But we're just not in a place at the moment where perhaps job design is the best that it could be to fulfil um, our needs, all the things that Jen's been talking about. And I do kind of feel that we're at this turning point I know I've mentioned it a few times previously when, when I've been pontificating about things that we really really do need to look at job design and in a way everything that we've been focused on for the last 50 or so years has been about getting more out of people um, you know you've all probably got a mobile phone in your pocket you know you now are expected, in effect, to be working every second of the day because even while you're walking along, you can probably be, you know, sending a message or, or reading something or watching something. Um, so I think that's the whole area that is going to need to be worked on and we need to be looking at and not enough attention is being paid to at the moment. The second thread that I wanted to pull out was around managers. Now, I had a conversation um, yesterday with somebody, you know, nine or 10 years service, really good at their job, sort of superstar, but has a new manager. And how many times have we heard that story that when the new manager comes along, everything changes? And from loving the organisation, loving their job, they're now questioning whether they can stay in that organisation and we've all heard that old adage haven't we about people leaving managers rather than the actual organisation um, so that led me to thinking about sort of management competency if you like and that if we think about all the things that we measure people uh, against in the workplace none of it is the stuff that Jen was talking about when we sit down and we do appraisals do we ever talk to our managers about their ability to do have the qualities do all the things that Jen was talking about I suspect 
not when we're looking at data in our organisation? Are we looking at the right data? Are we looking at, you know, productivity in the sense of outputs from our organisation? Or actually, do we measure how what is going on in a team and whether the culture there is appropriate or not? Um, interestingly, I've been asked a couple of times recently to go into organisations and do, for want of a better expression, appropriate behaviour training, which tells me that, you know, often there's been an incident and organisations want to, to improve things thereafter. So interesting to see, um, see that happen. Um, seen a lot of talk recently about the equivalent of greenwashing. So lots of talk about well-being in the last couple of years. But is it all the things that Jen has been talking about or is it, you know, bowls of fruit and other things that we might be doing that could be classed as the equivalent of, of greenwashing sort of publicity stunt stuff? rather than actual access to resources. And I'm sure Jen would say, you know, organisations need to be making sure that people have got funded counselling services in place and, and access to support. Interestingly, if you're in Rondekun and TAF, your council makes services available to you for free, which you might not appreciate. So check that out if you are in that area. Jen talked about manage, managing the issue from the bottom up and that sometimes that's that's the way change is going, going to happen. Um, I think we don't do enough listening from the bottom. And this is a this is an area where, you know, particularly with things like cost of living crisis, childcare crisis in this country, um, all the things that are causing people stress and barriers, it's sort of outside of work maybe things that employers can start to help with yet i'm horrified when i see cipd st statistics that your average manager has not even checked in with their team um so we've got to in our position in hr do something differently we cannot carry on as we have been um in a way, I think we are at a tipping point and it's our moment. You know, this is the moment for HR to teach people what we are really all about um, and, and to work with uh, with people like Jen. And um, yesterday I saw an article in People Management. Where I just pulled out a thread of something that somebody was saying around bullying. And it was that your bullies are acting inappropriately because they're allowed to be. And that really hit home with me. There's something about the dyna dynamics at play that is encouraging that behaviour and is making it worthwhile for the person. And 
somebody said in in the question about exiting the bully and that's our go-to methodology isn't it we you know if we can prove that somebody's been misbehaving then let's exit them from the organization and deal with the aftermath as the question was talking about but often we create the bullies by putting pressure on people to behave in a particular way um so let's let's perhaps think about it more holistically uh, than that and say what is it about our culture that is growing that behavior um there are drivers for change if people aren't going to do it i think regulators are certainly stepping into this arena i know my regulator for example is now publicizing their policies on things like um sexual harassment but also sort of bullying cultures um it's happening in banks uh it's happening in the financial services industry um so regulators are stepping in as are insurers insurers are much more interested these days in risk and where your people risks are and things like stress at work and what you are doing around that area so you know, if the sort of typical stats around turnover isn't enough to make you change, uh, then you might be forced to by sort of wider powers. Interestingly, um, pre-pandemic, Deloitte did some research and they reckon that for every one pound that gets invested in this space, you get a five pounds return. Recently, I've seen even higher statistics around things like um, employee assistance programs uh, for every pound that's invested the employer sees an eight pound return so there's a financial uh, driver there but as I said I think you know this is our this is our bag and if we can't get this right you know what are we what are we for really in HR so any final questions? Yep, a question from me personally. Um, how how direct should employers be uh, when initiating discussions about mental health? Um, now, I personally am, am quite quite open about my mental health um, and how well I'm doing, but I know that not everybody is, um, especially when people are going through it themselves. It can be quite like internal and they don't like to discuss it so knowing that it is a bit of a sensitive topic how open should people be when initiating those discussions yeah it's interesting isn't it often when I do training I, I get people to do an exercise where we talk about them going for a coffee with one of their friends and their friend confides in them that they've just been diagnosed by their GP with anxiety or depression or something and what conversation they would have with that person and people you know wax lyrical about all the support that they'd give that person the questions that they'd ask them and you know that they'd be checking in with them on a regular basis and things like that and then we talk about why when we shift to the workspace and it's one of your team who maybe comes forward with a gp's note why that conversation can't be the same because it's just a conversation with a human being at the end of the day um and that's quite an eye-opener for people when we do that exercise and it makes them realize that perhaps 
they're putting barriers in their way that they didn't need to have. I know the, the Chartered Institute of um, Management did a survey a couple of years ago and, you know, generally as Brits, we're not brilliant at talking about sex, are we? That, that people came back saying they'd rather have a conversation about sex than have what they perceive to be a difficult conversation in the workplace. I don't know about you, Jen, what, what are your thoughts? No, I agree. I think it goes back to the stigma question. And like, if we think about this as something that happens to other people and, and therefore um, is a failure of ourselves, um, uh, which is the message that society gives us. So there's a recent paper that said that, that debunked that depression um, was caused by chemical imbalance and it sent shockwaves across the globe as was one of the most well-read, like highly read papers, because it also showed that 80 to 90 percent of the population believed that. So when you've got a population that think that it is about something that's wrong with you, having the conversation in a workplace environment where it's a largely about performance is difficult um, if we are holding that it's about what's wrong with this person. And it's not about what's wrong with the person. It's about what's happening to them. And the human thing to do is to connect and to to think about what are the circumstances that are causing this. But our like societal picture of that isn't that so it's about bucking that trend and creating that mini culture within the space that you are that moves it away from there's a problem with a person um but it, you have to work at that and it's a sustained culture that you have to keep it's a conversation you have to keep having you have to role model it um, and we have to think about how we talk about it as well um, and still lots of us i think talk about it as the mental health happens over there the mental health happens to those people even in our organization we talk about the work we do for the people and they're like no we're not talking about the people that we're working with i'm talking about you <laughs> we're talking about all of us in the room now and they're like oh i don't want to talk about that <laughs> and we're not really prepared i think as brits we're not really prepared <clears throat> to discuss our emotions because kind of like sex is, is an emotion <laughs> and we're not very good at yeah. doing that across the spectrum <laughs> it's a huge cultural shift I think in terms of us Wales I think is different Welsh Welsh culture specifically I think there's much more connection and thinking about it holistically um in Wales but um at UK level no we're still we need to move away from stiff up, stiff upper lip yeah, I was going to say, do you think fostering that kind of culture would help people um, deviate away from what I'm going to call the script in the sense of how are you? I'm fine, even though they say I'm fine. And what they actually mean is I'm not OK. My relationships are breaking down. I have housing insecurity. I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills. Do you think that is going to um like fostering that culture will move people away from using I'm fine as a bit of a get out clause of that conversation. Yeah, some some employers are um, using tools, um, so like an app or something that people have to react to a prompt and um, choose, you know, maybe red amber green or something like that smiley face unhappy face etc to react about how they are at that point in time and then obviously it might ask them some more questions so I think something like that might start to tease out rather than just the yeah I'm fine but then you could I suppose um play the app in the same way I don't know 
It also maybe alongside that look at I'm fine as a coping mechanism. Obviously, some people are just going to say I'm fine. They don't want to go there. They want to share that story with you. But some people may be saying it as a defense, um, because if they go there with the emotions, they'll probably cry. Um, and we don't um, welcome crying uh, very well. Um, we see it as a weakness, particularly in men. We'll see that as a weakness, whereas actually what you're experiencing there is the body's release from from overwhelm. Um, uh, and it's normal and it's healthy and it's a good thing. It's going to make you feel better. Um, but we don't think about that. So there's like a number of different things, I think, getting in the way of us being able to be more expressive and feel safe to do that expression. Yeah, I think I think that's um, really good. Um, and I think it does come back to what we said before about um, creating that culture of safety um, within the workplace and, and openness and that it is not a personal problem, but something that should be looked at uh, holistically and, and all the things that uh, somebody is experiencing. Jen, what's your views on um, the way we're all working in terms of Zoom and, you know, less time together in offices, more time perhaps communicating via technology rather than human interaction in the room? It's a disaster. Um, <laughs> there's some really good research. I can share a link with you and I can find it in a second. Um, uh, so we're social um, and there was a study that showed uh, we're really social and th this shows how much um, we they took six month year old babies that spoke English and they put them in front of um, uh, well, they put one group in front of a live speaker to learn Mandarin and they put the other in front of a screen version of that speaker same speaker to learn Mandarin and after the trial period the um, Babies that had the live speaker, they're six months bearing. Remember that, though. They were fluent. They were equivalent fluent um, in terms of the language acquisition. The babies in front of the screen learnt nothing. And so what it starts to show you is how we acquire information and how we acquire knowledge is through interaction and the power of the interaction of the, the social connection. And it is about being in front of people and the stuff that gets evoked in you, that gets evoked in me, that we attune to. Um, none of that stuff gets evoked when we're operating like this. Uh, I, I see I think I see it in our work. It causes loneliness and disconnection because we're not getting that feedback. Um, and so if you were lonely and feeling disconnected or you're feeling disconnected in your broader context, this is going to push that further. Also, a whole bunch of problems for education in terms of kids, but probably don't want to open that can of worms here, <laughs> especially if you've got kids, you're worried about that. Um, uh, and it was the only thing we could do. So, you know, you've got to take it in context. But I think there's huge, huge consequences for moving everything and, and phasing out connection. It's so valuable in terms of the repair and, um, and uh, our health like our literal health. Uh, if we take it really back to child development, um, not having connection means infants die. They don't get that physical connection from the adults, from the, from the parents um, in those early weeks, then, then they will die. Um, so we're not able to survive without connection with others. And that doesn't stop. We get better at it, but it doesn't stop. We better do the next session face to face, then, Jane. <laughs> I think, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Role modeling, yeah. yeah. In person events next, I think. I think. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, 
Robin, sorry, I've got a, a question. Also, just um, a comment as well. I don't know if people are aware, but Help for Heroes are actually doing a really good online training at the moment for suicide awareness. Um, it takes less than an hour. And that, although obviously it has the undertone for veterans, the messages are the same. And it gives three examples of when you might be able to identify when people are in crisis and actually what conversation to have with them. So it removes the stigma of what you should and shouldn't say. Um, and I've recommended it to a lot of my clients at the moment, because unfortunately, we've been dealing with a lot of people that have been in crisis and trying to get support from the NHS and they just haven't been getting it. And one employee in particular said it was only their employer that kept them alive because we'd arranged for them to speak wow. to their manager every day so that they had something to aim for. Um, and it was two weeks of that that he said kept him alive, which I, A, I think is worrying that the NHS is in that state. Um, but that training is fantastic. It's free. Um, as I say, it's online. So if you just Google help for heroes, suicide awareness, I think it's a really good tool to have. Um, but I guess that leads on to my other question is, is there any other things that you think we can do as employers where people are clearly in crisis or needing support, but actually the NHS just aren't listening? Unfortunately, that's not the first example I've had of it. And it's different health boards. It's not just Wales, it's England as well. As employers, is is there anything else we, we can offer, you know, when the doctors are just saying, oh, go and have a bath or, you know, that's helpful. <laughs> My advice would be to support the line managers in these situations because often they are doing such a job in propping up the person who's in crisis that their own health then starts to suffer as a result. So we need to look at what we can do to be helping them as well, um, I think. Yeah. And on that, Anna, what would those steps be then so obviously you mentioned before as well about um supporting people by um like signposting them to help or like paid and um, consultancies or whatever um but then um outside of that like is that enough is there more that should be done and that employers can do well i think one of the the big issues in organizations is that if somebody is spending a lot of their time supporting somebody else through something just an acknowledgement by the organization that their time is being diverted to that and not what they should be doing so that they're not suffering the double whammy effect of trying to do the day job and um so there needs to be discussion obviously with their line manager around time priorities and all the usual discussions around their work um just so that they're not put into a position of overwhelm i think yeah. um jen what what do you think um just looking at the chat as we're on mental health first aid mental health first aid is organized around diagnosis and won't give you um the stuff we've talked today around context the evidence base of that program is also dubious um uh, there's a book that uh, somebody wrote a dr james davis wrote recently debunking some of that so um i'd be cautious if we were going to go down that route but mary's in the call uh, could help point you in the direction of platform um other providers there as well in terms of what 
I think there's a really complex one in terms of sending people to the doctor. Um, so within the team that I just worked in, we were trying to move away from that and we were trying to help people hold on rather than refer on, because if relationships are the core thing, coming to someone like me who you don't you don't know what I do, you don't know where what, like the context that I'm in, we've never met before and you're going to have six sessions to tell me all of your stuff is not going to do it. Um, and and so people often arrive in NHS services frustrated that it's not what they thought they were going to get and it's not doing the thing because there's no magic wand better and um, there's a book um, what's happened to you uh, by Dr Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey that starts to speak to some of this healing happens in community and it happens in connection with others and it happens through understanding how do we regulate and what can I do to come alongside you to support that so where it's appropriate I would be encouraging you to keep connection and to draw on the relationships that somebody has and or letting them know that so that they can seek that out in the in in their trusted relationships um and it'll go much further than um that one-off consultation with a stranger um there's also lots of evidence to say that it's not in the 50 minute therapy session that the work happens the work happens on a daily basis and it happens through um feeling safe and being able to have conversations with people around you around their stuff so largely we need to like go back to what i said at the beginning about normalizing this and making the information accessible so that it doesn't feel scary um i always tell support workers like the uh, for therapy the only evidence is the relationship it's not the therapy, it's the relationship. So we need to be chasing and moving to where are the relationships because that's what's going to help people heal, um, yeah. which is the opposite of what we get told. Um, I think as well, what I do a lot, is I, I mean, it's called a stress risk assessment, but I don't think it's a very good description of it that the HSE put together years ago. And I would say I do them every week at the moment with employees, um, but it's more just around their mental health. And it looks at the six areas in the workplace that may be adding to or causing any issues. And I just find it a really good conversation opener. And the number of employees that I say, my God, you actually are listening to me. And, and and then we repeat it. So it's not just a one off. We'll repeat it, you know, in, in either yeah. two weeks or it depends what's what, you know, part of their recovery or illness that they're in. But I find that good as well. And then I share it with a line manager so we can look at their role and say, OK, so what can we do to try and help them where they are at the moment? And then we can keep revisiting it. Um, and that's just such a simple tool. It is really. And again, it's free, you know, and I've had so many people like message me after personally and just say, wow, thank you for, for actually paying attention to me. And I think that's what we need, isn't it? Like just just listening to people. Yeah. And, 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 you know, it's so good. Uh, most of the time we do, we do manage to successfully support people back to work as well, which I think is fantastic. Yeah, I think sometimes um, the other side of it as well is that organisations or employers are scared to take on that responsibility or that they might be blamed if it doesn't go right or that. So they'd rather kind of be like put, put them to an expert and then that that problem solved. But um, that's not always the best approach. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely, James. And Amy, what you're tuning into there is that secure based model. You're using that tool to organize their feelings and help. You're, you're seeing them, you're protecting them, you're, you're meeting those, those core needs that we have, not stepping out of the boundaries of your role, being completely appropriate about that, but doing that in the workplace context. So you're tuning into what we need um, from a relational health perspective. So I absolutely encourage all of the, the things that you're doing in that, those kinds of tools. 
the other tool that can be quite useful is um minds um wrap work related action plan i don't particularly like the language that they use in it so i've kind of done my own version but in terms of conversation opener like amy says to get people talking about what they need from their manager and what how they would like an organization to behave in certain circumstances so if we've got a concern about you who are we going to speak to you know what is it going to look like you know to open up those conversations it's a good starter for 10 again absolutely i've just popped the link to that um in the Brilliant. chat yeah um, so one last question from me. Um, how can an employer spot the warning signs that somebody is struggling and what should they be doing afterwards? So I know that, um, you know, not everybody is is open about their about their struggles. How, how do you how does an employer spot that? Biggest thing is a change in behavior. So what's different what are we noticing that isn't is out of character for this person that hasn't been there before is their performance dipping are they short and curt with people when we're speaking to them are they you know not answering their emails or their phone or switching their camera off or you know what are the differences from the person that we all know and love kind of thing be the big thing for me spotting change i think it's so personal i agree like you'll only know what's the usual thing for that person by knowing that person um and so it's tuning into where is their change but behavior is communication so if you start to see a change then that's there there's some kind of communication happening there so it's tuning into what is that and then what is that about but it's it's so difficult to spot because you'll need to know the person. And, and that goes back to the CIPD. You know, 48% of managers haven't checked in with their staff. If you don't know your team, how can you spot the change? Um, so we we almost need to get to the level of competence, competency with managers that they are expected. You know, their job is to know their team. And to be able to spot these changes um, and, you know, their job is people management. And too often we focus on the, you know, production of widgets or whatever it is that we're doing rather than that as their role. Oh, Amy, Amy's put up the link for the uh, Help for Heroes. Thank you, Amy. Fabulous. Thank you, Amy. Well, thank you so much both. This has been so informative. Um, I hope I'm not just speaking for myself when I say I, I've definitely learned a lot and it's going to give me things to reflect on and really think about when uh, thinking about discussions about mental health and even my own mental health. Um, so yes, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, me. thank you both. Yeah. James, I can't remember if we put a date in for the next session. No, we are wrapped this year. This is the final one. Um, and then we'll be back um, next year. But uh, yeah, when it's a new year, we tend to like hold off and organising the dates. So um, we'll be.
be in touch like yeah. Jan time and then we'll get all the dates kind of scheduled in from there. Yeah, yeah as ever uh, votes on what you would like us to cover uh, are always we always try to aim to please. Absolutely. I will be uh, sending out a post survey link um, just to see how you all thought about the session, um, whether you like the topics, what topics you'd like to see next um, and how you felt. So, uh, yep, please um, send your responses our way. And with any luck, best heads together, we'll um, create another topic um, in the new year that you'll all love. Definitely. Thank you very much. And have a good Christmas, folks, yeah. and uh, see you in 2023. Mm. <laughs> yeah, see you all in the new year. Definitely. Thanks, Thanks everyone. Thank Bye. you for joining us. Yeah. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.